Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Megan Lee. I'm Charlotte Bond. And I'm Lucy Hounsom. If you've been listening to our podcast for some time now, you'll be well aware of our fascination with fairy tales and how they continue to shape modern speculative fiction. But when we talk about fairy tales, we are often thinking of a very narrow subset. Those that are familiar to English-speaking audiences. But these are not representative of fairy tales and folklore across the globe. In this episode, we are very excited to welcome back Gabriella Houston, who will shed some light on Slavic folklore and the different narrative shapes that develop from such roots, and how she incorporates their darker elements in works aimed at younger readers. So, Gabriella, for those who did not happen to already listen to the wonderful episode where you joined us last year, can you introduce yourself to our listeners? So, my name is Gabriella Houston, and I'm the author of Slavic folklore-inspired fantasy novels for adults. Uh, my debut adult novel came out uh, last year. It's called The Second Bell. And uh, my first children's book just came out uh, February this year. Um, it's called The Wind Child, and it's about Mara, the granddaughter of Shibog, the god of winter winds, and she sets out on an epic journey to bring her father back from the dead. I have read The Wind Child, and I really, really loved it, and I'm a huge fan of fairy tales in general. But one of the things I found, you mentioned obviously Strubog there, gods are crucial characters in The Wind Child. Um, does divinity appear more frequently in Slavic folklore than it does in perhaps normal folklore and fairy tales? Because of all the fairy tales I tend to read, they're, they're sort of the more witches and wizards and dragons and things, but there aren't that many gods in them. Well, so basically when we're talking sort of pre-Christian Slavic mythology and folklore, the gods are there. We don't know exactly how they were worshipped, but um, they're more, they're sort of great, sort of they provide the structure to the world, I suppose. So they're kind of those elemental forces that that, that shape the world. Um, And the folklore is more focused on the everyday, the sort of the, the spirit world, the uh, the creatures that live alongside us, uh, you know, in a home, in a field, in the forest. So, um, so gods are more separate. So I'm going to uh, just uh, chastise Charlotte a little bit here and uh, pull her up for saying normal fairy tales. <laughs> I mean, we all understood what you meant, so it's fine. <laughs> Yes, but this is kind of the point in that um, a lot of us do sort of think of fairy tales as being or or folklore mythology as kind of being this one specific kind from this one specific root, you know, from maybe Greek mythology, maybe a little bit of Norse, but from a very sort of small area. And, Mm. you know, obviously there are a lot of different regions and places with very different and interesting folklore and mythology. You know, I find uh, so like Dreamtime or Aboriginal mythology really fascinating, and it's completely yeah. different. The thing is, there's a big difference between so there's a difference between 
the term of fairy tales and mythology and folklore. So, you know, mythology is basically old religions, right? The stories, you know, or you can talk about Christian mythology. So it's the the stories of of religions, right? You have folklore, which are stories of kind of everyday everyday magic i suppose and like the the things that affect us in a kind of everyday sense i that's how i would put it and then fairy tales are stories that we all agree are made up bits of storytelling that you know either teach lessons or entertain or or both but also like the way we talk about fairy tales it's it's you know they, they, they are referred to in a very particular fairy tales tends to refer to a very narrow sort of set of stories and um, very narrow set of traditions. When I said normal, I meant as in if you go in to a, a bookshop, one definition of normal is expected or typical. Absolutely. And I think we can all agree that within the publishing industry, if someone says, oh, I've rewritten a fairy tale, you would expect it. To be a well-known Western exactly. fairy tale. Exactly, yes. That was what I meant by normal. Wh- which in... is why I'm saying that, yeah, it's under- everybody understood what you meant. It leads me to a question of a lot of people tend to do something unusual because they want to have a, a unique selling point. Is that why you went for Slavic fairy tales in particular? Or is it, which I'm probably guessing, it's stories that you maybe heard as a child growing up and they they spoke to you more than perhaps the, the other story tales that we hear all over the place? Or is it just you read one and went, wow, that's amazing. I'm going to totally do that. I read more than one. But, uh, <laughs> but it's, um, uh, well, I'm Polish. So it is like, you know, one aspect of, uh, of my, you know, culture and my heritage that I am perhaps more, most keen to, to share with the world. I think it's, I think, uh, you know, Slavic folklore and Slavic mythology is really interesting. It's multi-layered. It's, uh, and I don't, know that many people see as does that not even in Poland to be honest old sort of Slavic traditions like mythologies and folklore fell out of favor when I was you know when I was a child people were not very interested in it in Poland so I of course uh, my my parents read to me uh, you know books of fairy tales from like kind of Slavic fairy tales or I had picture books of you know about the old creatures and all, all that but then as I grew, there was nothing to take its place, nothing to kind of um, guide me to sort of be more interested in, in that aspect of my heritage. Uh, and, you know, we, we don't teach it in schools. Uh, so I, you know, when, when I grew out of that, of those fairy tales that are only presented in a form that is interesting to children, really, um, then I became interested in Greek mythology and Norse mythology and uh, uh, some Asian mythologies and um, Celtic mythology. And I was reading those voraciously. And I studied those in school, you know, both primary, secondary levels. Greek mythology is taught. And then so I only came back to Slavic mythology as an adult. Um, and I wanted to explore it a little bit more. And, uh, there's not, there wasn't that much around. There's more now. Um, but it's interesting, isn't it? How it's actually like a part of my heritage, but it's something 
that I feel people don't really pay much attention to. And there is a little bit of a kind of, okay, Slavic revival is, you know, it, it's a very particular kind of term, but I feel like we are going through something akin to a Slavic revival of the late 19th century now, which is why, you know, people get more and more interested in those old um, old traditions. You know, uh, some of it is linked to some more worrying trends and kind of political movements, sadly, but some sort of nationalistic tendencies. But um, but culturally, it's very interesting because people are trying to sort of establish what their uh, canons are. You mentioned there um, growing out of the stories that you read mm. as a child. Um, and also you mentioned the revival that we've seen in recent years. I mean, we, most of us were introduced to fairy stories or fairy tales, folk tales through things like the Brothers Grimm, you know, which to some extent sanitize the stories. Um, but, you know, we've definitely seen a revival, as you pointed out. We've seen an awful lot of authors, you know, taking up these stories, creating retellings, revisiting myths, introducing perspectives that, you know, we haven't, that, you know, the dominant narrative has overlooked. Um, do you think that is? You know, why, why do you think that is? I mean, like, are they in, are they so enduring that you know we want to explore them as adults? Do we want to rediscover some of those darker, the darker roots of fairy stories? Um, I mean, uh, maybe there's an element to that. Um, I think uh, there is something quite slightly more fundamental in 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 that the you know, fairy tales and, well, old folk tales and mythologies explore things that are quite sort of universal and fundamental to kind of human experience. And that is um, the source of their enduring appeal. When you talk about fairy tales as well, like the, the form of a fairy tale is, you know, you ha you tend to have a hero and that hero doesn't necessarily always have a name as well. Have you noticed that? So you, you have a, you know, a hero or a princess with no name, but they do those magnificent things. And it's part of it is, I think, to this, this simplification of like taking everything that is not necessary out of, uh, of the structure to, to hold on to something quite universal and quite quite versatile um, and something that endures as well. So so I think that is something that, ha you know, the folk tales and sort of fa fairy tales uh, have in common sort of more widely, more specifically in terms of, you know, like my interest in, in Slavic folklore now is that because I have read all those other, about all those other mythologies and I have... Um, you know, read about like the, the theory of them and sort of, and all that, then it gives me a little bit more grounding so I can approach them from a different point of view. And I can, I look for the uh, sort of themes that go through the folk tales and, and I'm interested in different things that I was interested in as a child as well. So um, the fact that they have that other side to them it's really interesting. Like one thing that I've kind of, um, one of my kind of conclusions that, that, that I've come to recently when I was reading some old folk tales um, was, was quite a startling one for me, which is something that ancient Slavs, for example, seen, what we can tell about the ancient Slavs' values from the folk tales is 
that they valued kindness, for example. And that is not an obvious thing at all, because kindness as a, as a quality uh, was not valued in the same way in Norse mythology, for example. So when you look at the quality of kindness in Norse mythology, if, if you were kind among the Norse gods, I mean, what would happen to you? You would be tricked and you would be killed, most likely, or, you know, uh, have everything stolen from you. But in many traditional uh, sort of mythological tales of ancient Slavs, those who are kind often endure. That's a really fascinating point because you're right. I'm thinking about the Grimm's Tales that I've got in my huge book upstairs. And it's um, there are a few with kindness. Generally, they seem to value cunning. Cunning seems to be the one that they really like. And if you outsmart you know, this demon or that demon or each other. But there are a few where being kind will get you a reward later on down the line. So it's interesting, obviously, in terms of the kind of mix of ethnic groups um, that uh, have influenced the stories that the Grimm brothers have collected. That's quite a sort of wide spectrum, but, you know, largely kind of Germanic tribes, uh, you know, when you look towards sort of uh, Northern Europe, like you say, tr- Trickery was seen as something quite, um, it was valued. So if, if you could trick your enemy, that could bring you victory. And, and that is uh, something that is not found in the same way in, in, uh, in, in Slavic folktales. So uh, tricksters are not, are not, you know, they're, they're not honorable. They're not, uh, they're not respectful. And the being respectful and keeping to your word are uh, seen as very valuable in uh, in ancient Slavic folktales from my research. So basically being respectful to the spirit world and keeping to the rules and being empathetic and kind are actually seen as... Uh, as qualities that can be the difference uh, between life and death in some cases. Then, you know, with, with the advent of Christianity, that quality disappears from the folktales. Kindness to non-human creatures is no longer seen as, as a value. So those things are, are something that you can really glean a lot about the values of a society whose mythology you're reading. Since we're talking about these Differences. I'm really intrigued, actually, to to hear about the differences in traits that are valued. Uh, you know, as in kindness over cunning. It, that's just it's, it's particularly interesting, and it kind of makes me wonder whether you've noticed that. <sighs> Tend, fairy tales and, and folk stories, they tend to focus on that there's always a moral message in there. There's always a danger, a challenge that has to be overcome. Um, and since you were highlighting the differences between these, you know, different um, cultures, folk stories and, and what they value in their heroes, um, do all folk stories and fairy tales warn about the same dangers or... Are there some dangers that are specific to particular cultures, say? I think there's, you know, there's a bit of both. And there's a bit every, obviously, you know, there's uh, there's a lot of mythologies that I'm not, you know, closely familiar to. So I can talk only talk to the ones that I have actually done some research in. But 
the purpose of religion in society is to, you know, in big part to guide the members of a society within the schematic of a society's rules and in order to establish what is safe, what is not safe, how, what is our ambition for our community, how do we want to achieve that ambition, what structure, what scaffolding are we building around our community in order to preserve the shape that we have dreamt up, yeah? So, um, so that's my kind of view on that. And obviously, different societies value different things. And some of it is based on literally how does the society emerge? You know, what is the kind of uh, geopolitical situation? You know, how safe are the people there? Do they live in, you know, vast forests like ancient Slavs did? Or or do they live in a cold and icy... Um, like a tundra, say. Yeah, or, or in a tundra. So... All of those things really shape the values because it's about, you know, we, we like to think ourselves, you know, as very sophisticated creatures. A lot of it is about survival. It's not about the, the bottom line is, you know, uh, how do you survive in the society? And it has to serve a purpose. The values that we assign ourselves, they're not constant as much as we'd like to think they are. Uh, you know, whatever we think is the only right way of thinking now might change in five years time we live in a we we actually now live in a unprecedented time of change when it comes to what we consider to be our values as a society and there's you know discrepancies depending on where you live and and all that so but it has to serve something if it doesn't serve a purpose you know in evolutionary in terms of survival um it gives way to something else entirely and you know at that time you know it was not if you if you don't live in a very safe place the values you profess and you teach your children have to serve something so kindness it's not just altruistic kindness it's a basically if i empathize with you you empathize with me we we I protect you you protect me i allow strangers into my home because i believe that those strangers you know when when they break bread with me they will not harm me and then if I go out into the world someone will take me in so there's this mutuality and those are the rules right so it's not necessarily about the kind so the kindness of your heart you know in in the story it's a kindness of your heart but what it teaches you it's the rules of you have to try and be kind even to something you don't understand because it can mean your survival in the long term. Whereas if you're talking about tricksters, that's a different, um, that's a different strategy for survival. One that is, you know, less cooperative perhaps, right? So in, in terms of Slavic mythology, the, 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 the other thing I found is that uh, the respect for a natural world is uh, absolutely imperative to the hero's survival. So like in The Wind Child, I have uh, Uncle Borova and Aunt Auntie Borova. And, you know, they're the forest guardians. And they are in, in a one way quintessential to how I understand uh, a great part of the spirit world in the Slavic mythology. 
their purpose, their goal, their the entirety of their values are to protect the forest. That is their purpose. And within the confines of that, they are kind. They're kind to the creatures that they serve. They're not kind towards humans because humans are outside of that world. It doesn't mean that they're unkind. We might think they're unkind, but they're just deeply ambivalent. And you, where, as a human, when you enter their realm, you have to show the respect towards them. It's not all about you. you it's not human-centric in that respect. You have to show them the respect and you have to understand the rules that they follow. Because if you just go into the forest and try to like kill indiscriminately, you have broken the law that they set. And just because you broke their law and you don't know about, you know, you, a law you don't know about will not protect you. You have to understand the rules and you have to abide by them or you have to come to some kind of an agreement with, with the spirits and then you have to keep to it. So there's, um, there's a lot of sort of pull and pull in that respect. It, and it tells you about how the ancient Slavs saw the, the natural world around them and the deep respect they had for it. I do really love the idea of, um, you know, bringing geopolitics into it and linking, because you're completely right, uh, to link the development of folk tales and folklore with the natural world and with the, the the perils of the natural world. And, you know, obviously we do understand that, you know, things are, are very different um, today. The way people live is very different. Um, but I think that's possibly, you know, you've, you've highlighted the enduring power of folk stories and fairy tales to because it, it brings back to us the sheer power of nature and how this bond is often neglected you know in the modern world what i was interested in asking was you mentioned um the auntie and uncle of the forest there um mm-hmm. but you also said earlier that tricksters weren't valued particularly in these kind of fairy tales and the thing i remember is that mara tricks uncle with that little white fawn um, so I kind of wondered mm. where that came into it, whether that was maybe your um, your reading of Greek mythology, which is full of tricksters coming in and just kind of edging <laughs> its way in there. I mean, we all love tricksters, don't we? Um, because we're very, very powerless with, within, uh, very, very powerless who manage to endure in face of the powerful. But the way I kind of, so Mara is a trickster in, in one way, but in another way, she is, something subtly different because she doesn't break the rules at any point. I mean, she uses her knowledge of the rules of the forest in order to achieve her goals. And she's, of course, not being entirely forthcoming, but she understands what the purpose of the spirit guardian is. So... Um, not to give like too many spoilers and stuff like that, but she understands what the what makes him tick, and she can un- she can understand what sort of agreement she can come to with him. So to me, it feels like it, it felt a little bit different writing it. It was it was, you know, she 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 was tricking him, but also she was basically using the rules against him. So she wasn't she wasn't pretending to be some something she's not. She wasn't, you know, she wasn't lying in a way that. Um, that could have caused him harm. Absolutely. And I think what I liked about it was if you think about Norse mythology in particular and our favourite Loki, 
there's a lot of gloating there and there's a lot of breaking the rules. Whereas I liked what mm. you did, which is, yes, she tricked him, but she tricked him by sticking completely to the rules. And if we're talking about kindness as well, you worked in the fact that it was obviously to help the fawn as much as to help anyone else or, or get an advantage. And I think that came through. And that's a really fantastic message to have within a children's book that you might not necessarily get in more Western fairy tales. It's, you know, the, the respect for the natural world uh, is something that I'm, that is very dear to me and I kind of, I, I, as a concept. And I think it's something that humans have to relearn being a little bit more humble, um, a little bit less navel gazing, perhaps, and more looking outward and looking into how, how we can solve a problem that we have created in the world. So I think looking back to the values of, um, so basically the kind of after Christianity took hold in, 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 in ancient Poland, like it's, you can see the way the stories have changed in that humans became, um, the overlords in a way of the natural world around them in their own minds. And, um, this, Ability to emphasize with the spirits uh, is pushed away because the spirits became uh, a symbol of something evil and not not godly anymore. And this idea that humans are custodians of the earth, I mean, we're not very good custodians, are we? So having this idea that we're above the world rather than part of it, which is what I... um, I wanted to sort of bring things back to. I think that is a, a big part of our problem, of sort of the source of our problems, that we no longer see ourselves as part of the world and that we have to abide by the rules um, of the world rather than change the world to suit us. I wanted to, to just touch on how you were talking about kindness because I immediately started thinking of the second bell where you have a community that, basically looks out for each other and they have to do so in order to survive and you know perhaps coming from a very different part of the world um to (laughs) poland and um you know to me the idea of of being in the ancient world and trying to survive in those bitter conditions seems to me you know a hardship where you absolutely would need to be kind to each other and and need to come together as a community far more so than just in in sort of more temperate climes (laughs) so you know the society in the second bell it was the sugar community high up in the mountains of the community of outcasts they are cooperative i don't know if they're kind uh, the kindness is born out of love between friends and, you know, between neighbors, but, uh, but the fear and the kind of social taboos, uh, that kind of are at the heart of the second bell, um, really, um, really stop the kindness. And I think that any time that humans become, become convinced that their point of view is the only valid one and that they will no longer explore the possibility that they might be wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, that kills kindness. I, I think that if you don't engage with people, 
then how can you lay a claim to empathy greater than their own? I mean, how, how can you pretend that you're kinder, that you're more engaged, that you're more um, enlightened than someone? If you have lost the ability to speak with them kindly and engage with them on their concerns and points. And I think people uh, mislabel themselves sometimes. I think liberal means being uh, pro-dialogue. That's what it means to me. It means to me that, you know, you can engage with people you disagree with, engage with people whose opinion you cannot agree with. But if you don't engage with them, if you've lost that basic respect for their humanity, then, yeah, then I think you lose that true ability to empathize and you've you've lost some of the kindness that we all want to hold on to. So, you know, I, I, I think that in terms of old sort of Slavic mythology, it's like Vanir and uh, the two god tribes in Norse mythology. They're essentially the same tribe, but they have put a barrier between themselves that uh, is almost impossible to cross at some point. And, and they have become so distrustful of each other. And it, it always interested me, actually, in Norse mythology. And I wonder how, which way it would have gone if it had been given more time to develop as a mythology. because. Um, it was quite a young mythology when it was erased, really, uh, when it stopped being practiced. I feel like I need to jump in here and say that I feel like Gabriella has just told me that I am the most liberal because I constantly engage with Charlotte and Lucy with Lord of the Rings, which I cannot agree with their opinion on. Uh, <laughs> so liberal. So, 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 so you win the liberal trophy. Yeah, yeah. Yep, I am the most liberal. <laughs> that is what we have come to well, learn. Today. That means uh, you won't have to worry about, or you won't put up any resistance when Charlotte and I uh, do a Tolkien episode. Then we'll invite you <laughs> along, and you'll enjoy it, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I'm sorry, Megan. You have walked right into that. Now to prove your credentials, you do have to engage on that level. You do have to do a Tolkien episode. <laughs> yes, I'm afraid so. I'm Sorry. afraid so. Damn it. <laughs> I mean, that is, the you know, one of the most sort of important tenets of, uh, of liberalism, that you have the ability to question whether you're right. You know, I'm afraid, Megan, that Lord of the Rings episode is coming for you. Yep, I can see it now. <laughs> Didn't we make Lucy sit through a, a Star Trek episode? So it seems only fair. Like every episode is a Star Trek episode. I'm just waiting for the reference to drop here. <laughs> okay, so we've been talking about types, lots of different types of fairy tales, folklore, but I'm interested to know whether there is a kind of fairy tale perfectly constructed to approach very complicated or you know just sensitive topics like grief uh, and death uh, in childhood or to a child um and i wondered you know alongside that you've been talking about slavic fairy tales and folklore how would you approach um something so delicate and something so sensitive that you know sometimes with these these stories they can be very archetypal they can be quite broad brush strokes you would saying that there are very often times when these characters are not even named um 
Is that a boon when it comes to discussing such a universal concept as death or loss? I think the, uh, that basically death and, and grief are, I mean, they're obviously very, you know, central to, to, to the winter child story. And I think it's such a crucial part of the human experience. And, you know, we can either approach it with despair or we can approach it in a kind of more fatalistic manner. And, and I quite like, so one of the, um, one of the versions of, um, of Slavic sort of after death beliefs uh, that I have incorporated into the wind child is that uh, there's a duality to a soul and that uh, once, once you die, uh, your sort of twin souls travel for 40 days to Navia, the afterlife, where one part of you um, goes, you know, the immortal part uh, comes back uh, to live again, and then the uh, the human part needs to rest, uh, and it goes to rest among the stars, uh, along the Milky Way, apparently. Um, and there is a lot of hope to that, and that's the structure of a journey is, you know, when, when people talk about their kind of grief experiences, they talk about the, the, the sort of, they talk about it in terms of, just this process, the process of grief, but it all has to kind of, it, it, we know that it's not instantaneous. And I think even in fairy tales, um, when the fairy, the, there, there's been some fairy tales, I can't think of the detail, but I've, I remember there's like fairy tales, but when they deal with grief, they usually deal with the inability to process grief. Uh, you know, the king who, wasted away in his tower grieving for his queen you know that 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 sort of thing so we're when so the archetypes that have to do with grieving usually have to do with the inability to process grief and i think that is um i don't know if the kind of nameless aspect uh does much either way i think it's important to zoom in on things that are this kind of important uh and to sort of talk about them and and not gloss over them. And, you know, in, in most sort of fairy tale structures, you don't have the space to process the elements of grief to to examine them closely because of the simple structure of, of, of sort of most traditional fairy tales. So where I have seen it in fairy t- uh, discussed in fairy tales in, in, in most detail, it's mostly to do with the overwhelming grief, the inability to process grief. Um, so, you know, obviously when I'm writing ch- a children's book, I, I was thinking about a sh- showing grief in a way that, you know, you have to show it in a way that is kind of accessible and un- understood by children. But, not in a way that's sanitized. And I don't believe in sanitizing life in children's books. Um, I think that, you know, children face those kind of challenges and they grow in their understandings and, 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 and children understand and can process far more than we sometimes give them credit for. And it's, it's important to talk about, you know, death in 
in a way that is sort of, dig- you know, that it gives dignity, you know, that death, it ends our life, it's inevitable, and it also lends dignity to our lives. The, the, the sort of this paradox of this kind of, uh, the sh- it's the shortness of our lives that sort of give it some of our me- some of its meaning. And so that is some, some, there are some things that I wanted to kind of, you know, obviously talk about in, in the wind child. So Mara is, she is half God, half human, and she feels closer to her father. And when her father dies, she, um, you know, she, she decides that she is not willing to process his death the way her human kin does. She thinks that even though she has no powers, she lays claim on the sort of God heritage, uh, this Im- immortal heritage that will give her the, the chance to defy death. And so, you know, her journey is her own, um, her own journey of, you know, like she, she grieves along this journey, but she doesn't let herself grieve as well. And, it was important for me to, to, to show all those different elements of it and to show how, uh, how she processes it and how she view herself and how she thinks and how she sees herself changes throughout book as she sort of understands what, what, what's happened to her father and, and how, what her role is. So not allowing herself to process grief is part of the grieving process. Yes, I mean it is the, the denial stage, isn't it? Mm. So in 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 the kind of old archetypal sort of uh, stages of grief thing, but it's also a very human thing to do. You know, you don't. And I I, I think there's a lot of stories. A lot of I don't know if you guys heard that. It's like my two cats. I decided oh, to play. I heard the cat. Yeah, they're purring at each other and sort of dancing around each other for nightly ritual. Um, <laughs> anyway, sorry, I got distracted uh, by my cats. <laughs> oh, yeah. So in fairy tales, um, you often have, if you, you know, the other side of a kind of unprocessed grief is you have loss that is processed too quickly, that is processed in a way that is not really familiar to, you know, the everyday humans. So, you know, the main character, her mother dies and so her father remarries and then she has the evil stepmom. And this whole sort of aspect of how did this child or this young woman process her grief for her mother, that is just sort of skimmed over. That is not, you know, that is not part of the story. And I mean, you can look for maybe some metaphorical meaning in the kind of, you know, the things that her mother left her behind, you know, it's a kind of connection connector. But I don't think, you know, many, that many children's books traditionally would talk about the actual grieving process from a child's point of view. And I understand why that is. I just think that maybe we shouldn't sanitize, um, those key human experiences too much in instead of glossing over them i think they deserve to be treated with honesty and with dignity i completely agree about the sanitization and i think it also goes back to 
the point of fairy tales, given that a lot of them were there to warn children and help them learn about the world around them, whereas these sanitized children's stories that we get now don't really prepare children for the world and don't help them grow and, and understand how to deal with these things that do happen and can be scary and terrifying and upsetting and they need to learn how to deal with that on a day-to-day basis. When we think about childhood as well, um, it's largely like new concept. The, the childhood that we sort of think about, like that we think it's a, like instinctive way of treating children or thinking about childhood, that is reasonably new. And, you know, children were not seen in the same way throughout human history and in all human societies. They were treated as like basically not quite grown adults or something in between. So there's like, um, you know, in a lot of sort of Slavic uh, folk tales, you have um, the way that a child is seen in a sort of child's place in a society is seen as a kind of, you're almost like in an in-between. You're, you're, you still have a connection to the kind of spirit world you know, whence you came and you have, uh, and you obviously have, you're not quite there yet with the adults. So, you know, children can hear and see spirits that uh, their parents cannot. But this childhood of innocence, the childhood of this, like, we need to shelter them from the world, that comes from you know, our society is becoming, you know, very, very safe and very, very kind of, sh- you know, we we, sh- we can, we shelter ourselves. We have the luxury to shelter ourselves. And we have kind of, I think, lost, uh, not obviously not everyone. and But I, I think definitely it's a more recent trend to go back to those darker elements of the fairy tales. There was like this long period where children's books were coming out with this, you know, everything that was a little bit scary or a little bit sad was sort of taken out. Even, you know, I have books that someone gave me uh, for the, for my kids of the old fairy tale. And there's, um, you know, the Goldilocks and the Three Bears. And at the end, the Goldilocks just runs away, gets scared and runs away. And she's, you know, ruined the chair, the bed, she's eaten the porridge, thrown things on the floor, and there's no consequence <laughs> to her sort of breaking in, uh, breaking and entering and basically ruining people, you know, bears property. And I was thinking, like, what is the purpose of this story? Because, A, it no longer entertains. My kids were just like, uh, you know, w- what's happening? Why is this girl not punished? But it's, the, the stakes are not there. And I think that children don't necessarily like that. I can definitely see from my kids, like they like stories that feel like there's real stakes there, that, you know, that you you can experience loss, but there's no like protective, uh, you know, like that there's no sort of magical roof over your head that protects you, the characters from all harm. And I don't know why this trend sort of appeared of just basically making everything bubblegum and rain- rainbows. 
Well, Gabriella, thank you so much for talking to us. This has been absolutely wonderful. Lucy and I love talking fairy tales. Um, and I have to say that The Wind Child is a remarkable book about death that still manages to be really hopeful and sweet and kind. And I think that's a, a real achievement. And I can't wait to read it to my daughter, certainly. Uh, so thank you very much for coming along. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you for inviting me. I had fun as usual. Breaking the Glass Slipper is written and produced by Megan Lee, Charlotte Bond and Lucy Hounsom. Please help us spread the word. Subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.